Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hello, and welcome to Rational Security, the Let's Ignore the Debate edition. I'm Shane Harris of The Daily Beast, and I'm doing everything in my power to ignore the Republican presidential circus debate. What debate? Three ring circus. What Is there debate? A debate? Is there a debate happening? There's something happening, but... Something's if, happening in California. If the I Tonight don't... Show. Oh, the Tonight Show is on. <laughs> if I don't know and I don't hear it and I don't listen to it, if then it hasn't happened. happens in the desert. In Simi... Is it in Simi Valley? I don't know. Uh, I'm yeah. really just trying to ignore it. <laughs> you really don't know that there's a debate tomorrow. Yes, by the time you all hear this, the, the debate will have come and gone. And I think we're probably predicting we'll not, no one will have said much of consequence at all to national security. And but we'll policy. all be talking about it anyway. We all we will. Are we going to resist next week? I don't know. But let's resist this week. We're going to resist this week. We're throwing down a gauntlet resist, for as long as resist, we can. Resist. Exactly. Resist. When we start taking this seriously, you know you can too. <laughs> Uh, I'm joined, as always, by my friends Tamara Kaufman Woodis. Hello, Tamara. Hello, Shane. And my friend Ben Woodis. Hello, Ben. Hey. Uh, this week, uh, good show. Um, first, is the Obama administration's hand wringing over Chinese cyber spying making the U.S. look like chumps? We will weigh in. Two new books chart the meteoric rise of ISIS, and a former U.S. ambassador to Kosovo highlights the importance of international partnerships to U.S. counterterrorism. Plus, an object lesson, Homeland Security Secretary Jay Johnson wants you to chill out about the terrorism, about the cyber terrorism, about the immigrants. Chill out. Chill but out n- but and, n- be and be resilient. But not about uh, uh, the green lecture at, at, at some college in Missouri. Yeah, we're going to get to that. It was a big day for Jay Johnson. It was a big day. It was a speech. It was his Winston Churchill moment. It was his Winston Churchill moment. We're going to talk about that. He's going to be my object lesson because... He was an object lesson in something, which we'll get to. <laughs> we have a long history of making people into objects on this mm, podcast. Yeah. We objectify a lot of people we on this sure podcast. We sure do. And you know what? I think, they, I think they appreciate it. I think maybe we should start a new feature of every time we bring, each bring an object for object lessons, yeah. but we also bring a person to objectify. It's a small studio. It's going to mm, get crowded. Yeah. Time. Yeah. Well, we could try it. All right. Uh, let's start with. I could think of some people I'd like to oh. objectify. Well, now if we're making a list, honey, <laughs> <laughs> mine's encrypted. Um, just so my husband can't find it. Uh, so let's start with wordplay. Uh, I'll kick this off. Um, there is a terrific blog post uh, on this uh, little post called blog called Lawfare that we all like uh, by Jack Goldsmith. I hate it when Jack is right, particularly when he's taking issue with like things that I am covering and in a way like using me to make his point. Um, but Jack has a great post called Disconcerting U.S. Cyber to Turns Troubles Continue. And the sort of like less politic version of this is basically he's taking the Obama administration to task for leaking to people like me and the Washington Post and Reuters and the New York Times and others 
oh, we're definitely going to sanction China. We're really, really going to sanction China. We're totally going to come down on China for all of this cyber spying. And, you know, one week out from Xi Jinping's visit to Washington. Just kidding. We're not going to sanction him. At least for now. Maybe we will later. We're not sure. Maybe we will. Maybe we'll sanction Chinese companies. Maybe they'll be individuals. Maybe they'll be indictments. We're not really sure. And Jack makes the case, I think, quite persuasively that all of this sort of trial ballooning and hand-wringing um, is actually making the U.S. look profoundly stupid and incompetent and weak and like we're not going to sanction China at all. Um, it's uh, in the words of some former Israeli intelligence leader, if you're going to shoot, shoot, don't talk. <laughs> right. right. There you go. And, I mean, this is, I, I have to say, like, I mean, being somebody who has been trying to ferret out what the status of the sanctions uh, uh, issue is, Jack has correctly summarized that nobody knows what the hell is going to happen. The administration is completely divided on this. It's obvious. And, I mean, what do you guys think? I mean, is this, you know, is this evidence of an administration that is trying on the fly to craft some policy and this is just the interagency? Or is this just, you know, a really... Uh, sort of uh, naive attempt to float trial balloon. And what, what do you make of all of this sort of playing it out in the public space? Boy, uh, I, I mean, I could make a lot of different things out of the playing it out in the public space, but I can sort of understand the dilemma. I mean, this is an administration that actually has managed to thread the needle um, over its years in office of working with the Chinese um, on a number of issues pretty successfully, but at the same time challenging them on a number of issues, um, from human rights to South China Sea to cyber. Um, cyber maybe is the least developed of those, and uh, and so the challenge, whether that challenge is, is successful or not is still to be determined. But I think the real problem here is a problem of timing. Um, and it's clear that they feel themselves under a lot of attack, um, under a lot of pressure to respond. The administration The does, administration, yeah. because they, you know... <laughs> At first, they didn't want to admit that it was definitely the Chinese, but then they decided that it was okay to say that it was definitely the Chinese. And then the immediate question is, well, what are you going to do about it? Right. So maybe the leaking was started out as a way of staving off pressure, but with the imminent visit, um, it would be... I'm sure that the Asia hands are arguing that that's the worst possible time. Right. right? So, so just wait till the visit's over or something like that. But doesn't that just sort of put off the inevitable? I, I agree with you. And, like, all of my reporting suggests that the State Department and the White House are very much on the let's wait. And you've got sort of the law enforcement and the intel crowd kind of leaning more towards let's do it. But does it diminish the efficacy of the sanctions if, after all this, we wait till he gets back and then we do it? Wouldn't it make such a clear, stronger signal to do it, you know, diplomatic incident be damned, do it you know, right before he lands in Washington. Well, of course, we don't know what the Chinese are threatening, right? They might say, if something happens on this front, we will cancel the visit. Or we Would that be so bad? Ye- well, <laughs> <laughs> I guess that depends what the U.S. government hopes to get out of the visit. Yeah. Um, but I think the agenda with China is so big that it's a pretty hard case to make that it should all be sacrificed on the altar of this. Yeah. So I, I'm trying to think whether I disagree with everything Tammy just said or whether I disagree with merely a lot of it. I think it's merely... Either is good radio. I think it's merely <laughs> a lot. Um, so first of all, I think the time to have done it was two or three weeks ago. And that way you have plausible deniability that it's in the run-up to the trip 
um, to the meeting, but it is in the run-up to the meeting. You can claim it's unrelated. The Chinese have the chance to have a temper tantrum and do their retaliation and then still come to the meeting, and you make your statement. If you're going to not do that, you can't do it right on the eve of the visit because that's like, you know, giving... Uh, Xi Jinping, you know, like bad food or right. something. That's that's just you call a, that the turd in the punch bowl, right? Exactly. <laughs> it's a really unpleasant thing to do. That's an official diplomatic. Exactly. Term. Exactly. So, look, Jack's point is very well taken, and it's not simply that the administration does it is doing this this time. It's that this is what they do every time. Every time. That this is, um, you know. We're this time we're going to retaliate in a big way. We're going to do something really dramatic, um, you know. And then a week later, well, we kind of decided to do something not so dramatic. Okay, here it is. Look, it's really dramatic. We indicted somebody, or you know. And the the record that he has amassed of essentially the same statements being issued every three to six months. Um, and the same non-actions being taken and the same interagency process getting bogged down in the same dispute is long at this point. And I think his, his record of it is, you know, substantial and sobering and should be really embarrassing to the Obama administration. And to the point that at the last round, when the administration was really thumping its chest, he wrote a post that says, don't listen to a word of this. They'll back down in a week and a half, just like they have the last eight times. And the post that you're you know, referring to is the sort of, see, I told you so mm-hmm. post. Okay, see, I don't even disagree with that, but I think that... You know, you're you're suggesting that it's basically a process problem. And I guess, you know, if you take Jack's point seriously, that this is what they do every time, maybe it's not a process problem. Maybe it's a policy problem. Oh, I think it is a policy problem. I don't think it's a process problem. I think the process covers for the fact that we don't have a policy and and that the policy necessarily involves very hard choices, which is either we're going to have to compromise our other interests with China, and there are certain things that we're going to forsake Chinese cooperation on in order to confront them in a serious way over this, or they're going to steal a fairly measurable percentage of our GDP every year. And you have to choose between the two of those, and you have to decide, does the Commerce Department and the State Department or does the intelligence community and U.S. industry have the, have the equities here? It seems to me like the, the, the president himself made fairly clear, well, as clear as he can be when this has been pretty muddy, uh, last Friday where he comes down on this. And I, I thought really in probably his harshest statements yet, his, most, his, his firmest statements yet on this, uh, he was speaking at Fort Meade, Maryland, which is the National Security Agency headquarters, and he was asked about China and cyber spying. And he essentially said, look, you know, we're going to have to draw lines in the road. We're not going to continue to put up with this. And if it's a fight the Chinese are after, they'll get it, and by the way, we'll win. I mean, it was this really kind of combative uh, uh, statement, which seemed to me to be like, okay, well, you're, you've basically said you have made the determination that this intellectual property is worth protecting and you're ready to fight for it. And what was interesting is that speech came on the last day of an unannounced visit, and I understand rather hastily planned one, 
by a senior Politburo official in China named Meng Xianzhu, uh, who came over with a Chinese delegation. Notably absent were any PLA members, by the way, but came over uh, and had a series of you know really intense, frank meetings with the Homeland Security Secretary, the Director of the FBI, intelligence officials, law enforcement officials, Susan Rice at the White House. And what this looks like is... You know, basically the Chinese came over to say, please don't sanction before the visit. That's, it's not entirely clear, but it looks like the threat of sanctions telegraphed through these press reports did at least sort of summon the Chinese over to deal with this. Now, that said, I mean, everyone I've talked to with some knowledge of this says it's not at all clear that any agreement came out of this to stop the behavior. There's still a lot of distance between the two sides. But it does seem like this is now finally maybe building towards something. And, you know, I, I do think that if, you know, if two weeks pass after she is gone and the momentum is no longer there for sanctions, this is where I think, you know, Jack would come in and I'd probably agree with him and be like, that's it. You can no longer take this kind of talk seriously at all. Because if you aren't going to do it now, you're never going to do it. Well, I guess the question is what, what would one expect the Chinese to say or do uh, to reassure? I mean, they're not going to come out and say... Yeah, we're sorry and we won't do it again. Right, exactly. Because they don't admit that they did it in the first place. Um, and so the only way that you can judge whether the threat of sanctions has any positive effect on their behavior is over time. And that, I think, I mean, I would go beyond this particular issue to say it's always a challenge for the U.S. government to figure out when to pull the trigger on a threatened sanction of some form, because once you pull the trigger, you lose the leverage, right? Um, but how do you know if your leverage is actually having any impact? And, and so, you know, it's a, it, it, the, the timing question is a real dilemma. And it may be that this particular administration errs on the side of delay um, and not wanting to pull the trigger and lose the leverage. On this issue, you know, I, I could name a few other issues where I've seen a similar dynamic, but it's not a simple question. I would just say, in any one iteration, it's fair to call it a timing question. But if the net result is that over time it never happens, um, then it's not a timing question, then it's right. a substantive and question. And the threat becomes empty and the leverage goes away. It reminds me of the darker cartoons. How about never? Is never good for you? Yeah. Right. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. That's our cyber sort of retaliation <laughs> policy. <laughs> how, about, how about never edition? <laughs> Oy vey. Okay, more to come on that. Stay tuned. Or more to not come. Or more yeah. to not come. We may never talk about this on this podcast again, at least in this administration. We could talk about what hasn't happened. That's true. We should have a whole podcast on things that didn't happen. Mm-hmm. Now that... Would be revolutionary. That'll be our end. We of the didn't Obama watch the debate. <laughs> we did not watch the debate. <laughs> now we're going to talk about it. Uh, all right, Ben. Uh, Tis the season of ISIS books, apparently, right? It is. So I am aware of four new ISIS books, um, or so. Um, they're almost as famous as Elvis. Yeah, they're doing really well, ISIS. They're getting a lot of books. But in particular, I've spent the last week and a half uh, reading two of them. Um, One um, by our Brookings colleague, Will McCants, which is kind of an ideological history of, of ISIS. And it's... By which you mean a history of their ideology, not... A history written from an ideological perspective. Correct. It's an ide- <laughs> well, I, an ideational history. Um, 
and ISIS on the couch. ISIS on the couch, yeah, or really ISIS uh, as told through a series of documents that you can't read because they're in Arabic, but Will McCants can read. <laughs> um, and it's very much the sort of view of a kind of religious historian who decides to take the ideas seriously. Wow. Um, and the other one, um, by one of my absolute favorite narrative journalists um, uh, who writes in the counterterrorism space, is uh, by uh, the Washington Post's Joby Warwick, um, which is a kind of history of, it's mostly about Zarqawi, or a lot of it's about Zarqawi, but it's a, a really kind of a narrative history development of ISIS. And um, they are both uh, really superb, um, really, uh, they're very different from one another. They tell very different stories and they're quite complementary because one of them is really, one of them is really about the set of ideas and the other is really about the people. Uh -huh. um, and, um, you know, I found it, uh, the, I found them both quite eye-opening just in terms of how this generation of uh, jihadists is really profoundly different from, you know, the ones we used to think were awful, like, you know, Osama bin Laden. Um, and um, it made me pose the question to myself, um, which I now pose to the two of you, um, is this, you know, if, if, if the result of our 14-year confrontation with, with al-Qaeda was to largely wipe out al-Qaeda, you know, at least at the core, um, but helped give rise to this latest, more um, metastasizing, more virulent strain. Is it good or did we just make it worse? Yeah, well, uh, that begs the question of whether it was the counterterrorism fight against al-Qaeda that created ISIS. And in a very narrow sense, um, in other words, to the extent that one views the decision to invade Iraq as a consequence of the of launching a global war on terror, um, you know, y you might say yes in the narrow sense. But in the broad sense, this phenomenon was there: the rise of of radical jihadism. Um, it existed before 9-11. Uh, it became defined by the United States as a major threat before 9-11, but became the focal point of a lot of American foreign policy after 9-11. And I just, I don't know that we can say, you know, if it weren't the invasion of Iraq and the sectarian conflict and civil war that emerged and, you know, al-Qaeda in Iraq that generated ISIS, if it, if it wasn't that pathway it's hard for me to, to exclude that there might, you know, another pathway for the creation of another form of radical jihadism that has appeal in a, you know, in some global sense and appears in a lot of different places, breeding off of local conflicts and breakdowns in local governance. Right. So I, I agree with that. I, I don't mean to sound sort of deterministic or U.S. blaming about this, but one of the things that was really striking when you read these two books is, first of all, how much the U.S. created Zarqawi. Mm -hmm. 
that Zarqawi is basically a nobody until Colin Powell focuses on him in that speech to the UN. And he becomes a celebrity because of that Colin Powell speech. Mm. He's basically unheard of until then. Then it's not just the invasion of Iraq, it's also the withdrawal from Iraq, which is like taking half of your antibiotics, right? I mean, you, you, yeah. you, you take just enough antibiotics to wipe out all the weak ones. No, the surge is like taking half your antibiotics. Exactly. It's yeah, a, it's, the withdrawal you know, is then and stopping your antibiotics. And then you're left with antibiotic-resistant al-Qaeda in Iraq, <laughs> right? which, which comes surging back like a staph like infection. A staph infection. <laughs> and now you can't get rid of it. It's better, stronger, faster than it was before. And it's got Baghdadi instead of, you know, and all of a sudden it's the caliphate. And I just wonder, you know, at every step of the way, whether, whether we have um, done things that seemed reasonable and sensible at the time that have helped condition this terrible outcome. Well, I mean, is, is your question also imply then that, and maybe you know, this is a way of turning it back and asking you after reading the books, do you think or is the argument that they're making that we shouldn't have withdrawn, and that the only way to finally, you know, rid this infection from the land would have been, what, doubling the number of troops, being there for 10, 15 years. I mean, I've always thought that if you really took the counterinsurgency theorists and the Quindinistas at their word, you know, we would have had three times as many troops in Iraq, and they'd still be there, and there'd be no plan for having them leave. Well, and I guess I would add to that, that we have to remember that, again, while this specific phenomenon is intimately linked to the U.S. invasion and occupation of Iraq and the consequences that followed. The broader phenomenon, even of ISIS, is, as my colleague Bruce Rydell put it earlier today, um, a consequence of abysmal governance in Iraq and in Syria and in Libya. And that's not about what the U.S. did or didn't do. Right. So I do not want to say that we were the only or even the principal factor. Um, my question is sort Dude, of a backward... You're asking whether we just make it worse. I'm asking mm-hmm. in a almost Rand Paul-like way whether all these well-intentioned things that we do actually just have really, really big unintended effects. Um, and, you know, you, you finger a terrorist in a, in a speech before the UN, and by the way, you've just created an international jihadist celebrity... Right out of nobody. Um, and then you're fighting that guy for the next bunch of years, and when you kill him and then withdraw, you know, then you have the drug-resistant staff comes roaring back. And I'm, I was, as I read these books, I was just struggling to identify what's the point where the intended consequence of U.S. policy actually corresponded with the consequence of U.S. policy, it's pretty hard over any period of years to identify it. Yeah, I don't know if, if I, I don't think that's fair, because it, let's start with al-Qaeda core. I think the intentions of the United States with respect to the fight against al-Qaeda core were largely the effects. And the U.S. wanted to decapitate and, and fracture that movement and and largely successfully did that. It wanted to prevent another major homeland attack. It has done that. Even the Boston bombing 
was, you know, in the scheme of things. Well, A, it was homegrown, and B, in the scheme of things, minor um, compared to to 9-11. And so I I think that it's just not fair to say that the record of U.S. policy here is a series not merely of failures but of counterproductive interventions. No, but I wasn't talking about the the global record. I I was talking specifically about Iraq where we keep intervening, we keep doing things, and we keep setting up the next phase. Well, look, these movements thrive on... They thrive on on, um, an environment of uh, chaos and, and ungovernability, and they thrive on having a big enemy. Um... And so you can say that our intervention gives them a big enemy. But actually, and this is the thing about Will's book, ISIS's ideology is not really rooted in, you know, targeting the great Satan. It's not like the Islamic Republic. It's not even like Al-Qaeda that way. It's about seeing the conflict with the United States as a harbinger of the apocalypse. It's not about us. It's about the apocalypse that's coming. Um, And we're just a part of that story. So, you know, not intervening in a situation that's already ungovernable or extremely fragile where governance is falling apart, to me, is a recipe for creating a more conducive environment for these kinds of movements. I I just wonder if there isn't somebody who agrees with your earlier question and answers it yes, which is that, you know, we should be cautious about... Uh, our intentions and then matching up with our actions and our ability to actually achieve what it is we wanted. And I would wonder if President Obama wouldn't agree with you on that. I suspect he would. Well, but, you know, Obama used to say that he was going to be as careful about withdrawing from Iraq as as he wished people had been about getting into Iraq. And it wasn't true. He wasn't. And, And the latest phase of this conflict is pretty directly attributable to some very grievous mistakes that they made in the course of, of, of ending our involvement. One of which was relying on Maliki. Yes. There were a lot of them. Right, no, but, but let's not forget that this group had established a presence in Syria, and what happened in Syria after March 2011 is not because of U.S. policy. It's because of Bashar al-Assad. Um, As I say, not the only right. not the only factor, not necessarily even the principal factor. The question is whether our policies tended to make things worse. Okay, point taken. And in many ways, I think this is this is related to the questions and themes that were raised by Ambassador Tina Kaidnow in her um, Ooh, in good her speech. Seg- good well, segue. Thank you. Thank you. Is, and, and smooth segue, right? Smooth segue. Yeah. <laughs> so, Proving uh, you don't need moderators. <laughs> or segues. We'll always need you, Shane. Oh, please. So, it's uh, true. Ambassador Tina Cade now, the uh, U.S. Coordinator for Counterterrorism at the State Department, um, came in and gave a talk today at Brookings about the global threat environment and uh, kind of an update on American counterterrorism strategy and, you know, it's interesting, given the proliferation of senior officials in the U.S. government working this problem, how does Tina Cadenow define the problem relative to, say, General John Allen, head of the coalition to counter ISIL, 
Well, he's about ISIL, and she's about global jihad, or the global terrorism problem and global jihadism. And so she was trying to kind of wrap everything the U.S. is doing into this um, bigger frame. And, you know, there were two things that I think emerged very, very strongly from her remarks, which were not that newsworthy. She wasn't announcing any new initiatives. She wasn't, inter- you know, talking about the the status of any ongoing efforts, but she was basically framing. And the big frame was partnerships. And it gets to, I think, in some ways, the, the point that Ben was making. And I think, Shane, you're right to say that President Obama is one of those who's skeptical, not about whether the United States has the capability to intervene, but whether the United States generally has a positive impact right. when it intervenes especially in these conflicts in the Middle East and especially in trying to counter terrorism. She talked a lot today about partnerships, about how partnerships were the key to American counterterrorism strategy because at bottom um, what the United States is combating is an environment of failed governance, of ongoing underlying conflicts, of groups with local grievances that affiliate themselves with ISIS or with al-Qaeda for self-interested reasons and thereby propagate and metastasize the problem. And so those underlying conditions, she indicated, are things that the United States can do some things about. And she talked about rule of law programs and counter-messaging. But largely, these are issues that local governments have to deal with. And so the United States is, she never used the word dependent on its partnerships, but it's pretty clear that the U.S. counterterrorism strategy is dependent on partnerships with local governments that will do the right thing to create a hostile environment for terrorist groups and not only be good military and intelligence partners in combating those groups. And, you know, I think that's honest and I think it's accurate. Um, The United States cannot itself reinvent governance in the Middle East. The war in Iraq showed us that, if nothing else. Um, But it really begs the question of whether American partners in the counterterrorism effort are um, capable, willing, effective. Um, In the discussion after the speech, a number of specific partners came up. Pakistan. (laughs) Which partners are they? Right. Saudi Arabia, Egypt, uh, Russia. (laughs) You know, to what extent uh, is it wise for the United States or effective for the United States to have a counterterrorism strategy that relies on such imperfect partners? Well, I mean, why does it always have to be a state? I mean, wasn't it one of the great tactical, maybe, successes of the surge you know, aligning with Sunni tribes and Sunni militias and getting them to come over to our side, temporarily, albeit. Uh, and I, I suspect that's something that you know, treated in those two books you were talking about. Um, <clears throat> you know, hearing you talk about partnerships, I mean, it strikes me like what's happening right now in Syria is the United States desperate to find partners on the ground with whom it can work in the forms of, you know, the so-called moderate opposition. Um, but in an illustration of just how profoundly difficult this has been, uh, uh, General Austin, the head of CENTCOM, was testifying today about the campaign against ISIS in Syria, and he revealed the number, the current number of trained rebel forces uh, that are in Syria fighting ISIS that have been trained by the U.S. military. Six? Five. Wow. <laughs> five. I thought it was a guess. Yeah, no, he said four to five. So not even double digits. No. 
I mean, we had 54, but they've been captured by Elmistrip. Mm-hmm. And I mean, it, and, and one of the, and my point in this is, that, and I guess this is a question too, is you know, at some point it seems to me like these partnerships, and we know this with states, is going to require getting your hands dirty. It's going to require getting in bed with people that you don't like and whose values you may not support and maybe even trying to exploit the things that they can do that you don't. And it just seems to me that's manifest with the situation in Syria. And then we keep trying to sort of like down-select and limit, you know, well, you have to be a moderate rebel and you can't be a jihadist and you can't want to overthrow Assad, but you have to want to fight ISIS. And, and, and it's just that that just seems like, you know, we are not at all serious about partnering with anybody, at least in, in that conflict. And we've limited it to nation states and I'm not sure that's having much. Right. We've also imagined partners that don't, in fact, exist, uh, right? Yeah. I mean, the, the average Syrian would-be fighter may hate ISIS deeply, but has an opinion about Bashar Assad. And that opinion is not going to be uh, you know, neutrality. They're either going to be fighting for or against Bashar Assad in their own minds. And, you know, to, to insist on a reality in which that's not the case just seems very silly to me. Right. So you're both making the point that when, we're, when the U.S. is looking for partners below the level of national governments, it's trying to micro-engineer them in mm. ways that it can't. And I think one of the things that struck me thinking about cases like Pakistan or Saudi Arabia or Egypt is that the, when it comes to state partners, the United States accepts um, maybe a little too much that it can't, not only can it not engineer these partners, but it can't even influence them very much. And it doesn't want to because that would require getting its hands dirty <laughs> in the way that they govern them in themselves and their populations. And so, you know, for example, Ambassador Cade now said at one point in the speech, um, when it comes to radicalization on the Internet, different countries have very different attitudes about how to deal with that problem. Some impose a lot of controls on the Internet, and some think that it's better for the Internet to be open and to rely on putting out contrary messages. We in the United States favor you know, the counter-messaging approach but she didn't say, and we think the other one is counterproductive right. or bad for other reasons. You right, know? we don't want to criticize anyone. Just say what we like. But you, you know, know so it's, but, it, but it really struck me that it emphasizes that what partnerships is about for the United States in this context, it's about burden sharing. And it's about allowing the United States to have a certain degree of distance from the problem, which, you know, we can have to a certain extent as long as we're not talking about fi- foreign fighters returning or lone wolf radicalization, but it leaves a, a, a sucking sound where these problems are generated. Because if the United States isn't willing to get its hands dirty in Syria, for example, to end that civil war, that civil war is going to keep throwing off radical jihadis yep. who are going to want to try and but, attack us. But let's, let's be candid as well. It's also about U.S. preening about human rights, right? That we, you know, on the one hand... No, if we were preening, we would say we don't want cu- countries to control radicalization on the internet by shutting it no, down. No, <laughs> but 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 we do we do both at the same time. On the one hand, we want as much of the benefit as possible of partnership with organizations and with you know governments that are not you know angels from a human rights point of view. And on the other hand, we want a claim to stand for something, and. Um, that those those two sets of instincts pull us in very different directions 
at different times, and we respond to different governments very differently that way. So we talk about Saudi Arabia very differently than we talk about, you know, their philosophical, you know, counterparts in jihadi movements. And uh, though they would they would implement the same. You know, sets of punishments for things, and they have sort of similar philosophical backgrounds. And so, I, I mean, I think there's a there's a real there's a real question that it's not new um, that we have, which is how does our how do our interests and our human rights commitments? When does one trump the other, and when does the other trump the one? I, I'm not. I I think it's not necessarily about a conflict between counterterrorism interests and human rights commitments. In the Saudi case, for example, you know, it's not that their domestic repression is what's um, generating extremism. It's their governing ideology. It's their um, insistence on funding extremist schools abroad. That's not about human rights. That has nothing to do with human rights. But, you know, what we're saying is, we need you to be a good counterterrorism partner. We sure wish you would realize for yourself that that stuff is very counterproductive for all of us and stop it. But we're not going to insist. Right, but we also <laughs> would not give a government that was not a counterterrorism, quote unquote, partner uh, the sort of logistical help that we're giving the Saudis in gross human rights violations. Uh, in their aerial attacks in Yemen. We wouldn't do it. We wouldn't, you know, give... um, And you can count a hundred examples like that. We would talk very differently if the Iranians were killing people in Yemen the way the Saudis are than we do about the Saudis Maybe that just underscores the point that you two were making earlier, which is that the United States wants to engage in active counterterrorism efforts in the Middle East, but without getting sucked in. And so, you know, it's it's like if you want your spouse to cook dinner, you don't tell them how to cook. Yeah. Didn't Joe Biden, wouldn't that his philosophy too? <laughs> sort of active counterterrorism operations without getting sucked in. Yeah. yeah, if you want Maliki to run Iraq, you don't tell him how to run it. Mm-hmm. Well, we, we, that worked out. How'd that work out we for you, Joe? Clearly did not. St. <laughs> <Saint> Joe. <laughs> All right, let's move on to object lesson. I'll go first since I've been teasing it. Uh, yes, so my object is actually I'm objectifying the Homeland Security Secretary, Jay Johnson. He, he um, is. And he is a cutie. He, he is. Yeah, oh, he's, yeah, no, he's a, good, he's a handsome he's man. A fine specimen. <clears throat> and a smarty pants, too. Just a smart guy. Uh, <clears throat> so he gave this... Um, what I think actually, I, I think is an extraordinary speech um, uh, today as part of the, the famous uh, Green Lecture Series at Westminster College in Fulton, Missouri, which most people will remember as the place where in 1946 Winston Churchill uh, gave his famous speech about an iron curtain descending in Europe. Uh, and Harry Truman gave a speech there about eight years after that, uh, which he titled, it was, it was about not giving into, as he called it, witch hunts and, hyster- and hysteria which Johnson said was the jumping-off point for his speech, uh, in which he essentially talked about, as he put it, we must recognize that our first impulse and reaction to a threat to the American people is often not the best one. 
I can build you a perfectly safe city, but it will amount to a prison. I can guarantee you a commercial air flight perfectly free from the risk of terrorist attack, but all the passengers will be forced to wear nothing but hospital-like paper smocks and not be allowed any luggage, food, or the ability to get up from their seats. I can guarantee you an email system perfectly free from the risk of cyber attack, but it will be an isolated, walled-off system of of about 10 people with no link to the larger interconnected world of the Internet. This is real talk. <laughs> this is serious talk. It is, I think it is true. It has been true since his department was created. Uh, and I cannot recall a senior official and certainly not a Secretary of Homeland Security getting up and having that frank conversation wow. with the American people. So subversive. Yeah. But, okay, I, but Shane, what was he wearing? Actually, hold on, I have a picture of him. Well, if this picture is to be believed, he's wearing a very nice pinstripe suit. With well, a I would like to point out that there was an elephant in the room when he gave that speech. An actual elephant? Yes. Oh. But the actual elephant's name is Donald Trump. <laughs> right? And I think a huge amount of that speech, if you read it with, oh, with, yes. with Trump yes. in mind, yes. was really about uh, facile, idiotic... Uh, demagogic solutions to serious security problems from the border to, you know, just go kill all the bad guys and leave all the good people alone. Totally. And I think this is an example of uh, Jay breaking through to higher ground and talking about a intellectual problem without mentioning the many practitioners Mm -hmm. of that um, of that problem, but I, when I read the text of that speech, I thought, "Wow, here's a guy who's really impatient with the Republican field." Yeah, and yeah. Um, and he really uh, encapsulated, frankly, for me, a lot of the reasons why I find that you know that group of people, certain people, certain individuals, notwithstanding, like kind of infuriating on this set of issues. Uh, and I thought it was elegantly done without referring to party, without referring to any individuals to remind people what the difference between campaigning and governing looks like. And elegant is a good word to describe him, yeah. I think. Yeah. An elegant, smarty pants. He is. Love you, Jay. It's great. Um, and I would be remiss not to mention that he also uh, told a very moving personal story about his own father, who I didn't realize this. Grandfather. Sorry, grandfather who was the president of Fisk University in the mid-1940s and 1950s, at the time the preeminent uh, African-American college, and hired a white mathematics professor uh, who could not get a job because he was believed to be a communist. Um, The elder Johnson uh, testified before the House Un-American Activities Committee, the Tennessee state version of that as well. Didn't know there was one of those. And and was really just, I mean, uh, uh, very outspoken about saying that this notion that black colleges were somehow a haven for communists was bogus, um, stood up for academic freedom, ultimately had to let the professor go and suffered a massive heart attack the next year and died. And Johnson talked about... You know, his grandfather for being a model for him of standing up to hysteria. So, mm-hmm. a deeply personal speech and quite lovely in that regard, too. So, what's your object? Who did you objectify today? <laughs> well, I'm not going to objectify my colleague Daniel Byman, but I am holding up an object, which is his brand new book, uh, Al-Qaeda, the Islamic State, and the Global Jihadist Movement. Yet another ISIS book. God, and Well, not just ISIS. We're talking about jihadism in general yeah. here. We're on to the global jihad and, uh, and subtitled What Everyone Needs to Know because this is part of Oxford University Press's lovely What Everyone Needs to Know series. Um, so it's, uh, it's just brand new out. We launched it today. 
and uh, and I commend it to everyone because I, in addition to being a great primer, um, I think Dan really gets at a lot of the issues that we've been talking about today, the link between these sort of core movements that are committed adversaries of the United States and the global metastasization, as you put it earlier, Ben, of of movements inspired by jihadi ideology, but that combine a lot of local and global uh, interests. Um, So that's my object, and uh, looking forward to seeing that appear on classroom syllabuses everywhere. Ben. Who did you objectify? Well, I didn't objectify a person. I objectified a former object. So oh there was this God. kid this as... This has gotten seriously abstract and meta. Yes, well, it's not an object that exists anymore. But this kid was arrested in Texas, as everybody knows, for bringing uh, a clock that he'd made to school. Ahmed Mohammed, right? Ahmed Mohammed. Yeah. And now has been the charges have been dropped, and he's um, been invited to the White House, invited to Facebook. He's... Kind really of an international celebrity. Does he code? I'm really, I'm really proud of him. But I'm also wistful for the days when you could actually bring explosives to school, which I did once with my grandfather. New York in the seventies. New York man. in he the seventies. Anything then? Uh, I so I just wanted to share this story about this object, which was a paper mache volcano that I made in my basement. And when I finished it, it was really well done. I was proud of it, but it couldn't erupt, and baking soda and vinegar just didn't do it for me. So I called my grandfather, the chemist, who was a professor at City College, and I told him he needed to help me make the volcano erupt. And I don't remember why I told him it needed to happen at school, but he brought down a, a pa- like a packet of uh, this uh, sparkler-like explosives and we put it in the volcano in, uh, with an electric charge in it, which had a plunger like those things that people... Just like Wiley e. Coyote. <laughs> exactly. It was just like, and we plugged it in. And so this is how much the world has changed since the mid-1970s. The teacher's reaction to this, she did not call the police. I was not led away in handcuffs, nor was my grandfather. Nobody had to sign a liability release. There were no liability releases. She gathered the class around the volcano, and they all went three, two, one, and then I hit the plunger, and the volcano uh, erupted gloriously. And so I say to, to to Ahmed Mohammed, Bring in some real explosives to school, <laughs> man. Um, Go for it. The world is with you. You know, this is your chance. This is your moment, dude. If you can't do it in elementary school, when can you do it? Oh, I love it. I love it. Well, if, if he does that, we will definitely we will definitely talk about that next week on the show. For um, sure. All right. Well, that brings us to the end of the podcast. Uh, Rational Security is, of course, a production of Spaghetti on the Wall Productions, and you can find... Links to all of our other shows at SpaghettiOnTheWallProductions.com. Remember, when you subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or your favorite service, please leave a rating uh, and a review, which helps other people find out about the podcast. Uh, The podcast is edited by Jen Howell. Our music was performed this week by Jay Johnson and the Electrified Objectified. (laughs) (laughs) No. (laughs) The Electrified Objectified? That is genius. If he had a band, that's what he should call it. Totally.
Or the smooth operators. We're waiting <laughs> on you, Jay. Or call me. The cool suits. The cool suits. Ooh, that's good. <laughs> Jay Johnson and the cool suits. Yeah. The cool suits. Otherwise nice. known as Sophia Gant. <laughs> 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 Who, of course, really does our music, as she does every week. And thank you, Sophia. Um, that's it. On behalf of my friends Tamara Kaufman-Wittis and Ben Wittis, I'm Shane Harris. And we will talk to you next week. Thanks for listening. <laughs>